Van Nuys is a neighborhood in the central San Fernando Valley region of the city of Los Angeles, California. And it was there that newlyweds Sherry Rasmussen and John Rutten lived in a condo together on Balboa Boulevard. Sherry Rasmussen was born on the 7th of February, 1957. Her parents were Nels and Loretta Rasmussen. The middle daughter of three, Sherry was known as a gentle, kind and caring woman. Strikingly beautiful, her compassion for others drove her to study nursing at the age of 16. By the age of 29, she was the director of critical care at Glendale Adventist Hospital. Sherry was well respected and known for her caring approach to her job. John Rutten was born in Eugene, Oregon in September 1958. He excelled at basketball growing up and he continued that passion at UCLA where he studied engineering. He was a charming, handsome and athletic student. He graduated in 1982 and a few years later secured a job as a mechanical engineer at a disc drive manufacturer. John and Sherry met at a party in the spring of 84. John was immediately attracted to Sherry. As soon as he met her, he got her number from a mutual friend. They went on a date and instantly hit it off. They became an exclusive item from that very first date. Shortly after meeting each other, John met Sherry's parents and they enjoyed family trips together on their boat. They were engaged in May 1985 and John bought Sherry a BMW as an engagement gift. John moved into Sherry's condo on Balboa Boulevard and they were married on the 23rd of November 1985. Friends and family described them as the perfect couple, utterly in love. Prior to meeting Sherry, John had dated several other women. In 1981, while studying at UCLA, he met a fellow student from the same dorm who also played basketball, political science student Stephanie Lazarus. Stephanie loved sports and was very fit. She was on the junior varsity basketball team and was known as a bit of a prankster. She was well liked and had a lot of friends. Stephanie and John grew close. Although they shared some intimacy at college, they didn't start a sexual relationship until after they graduated. They took trips together, and Stephanie met John's family on more than one occasion. Not many of their friends from their college days knew about their relationship, and at one point John started to feel uncomfortable about it, so he stopped seeing Stephanie for a while. John had always viewed their relationship as casual, and he continued to see other women while he was seeing Stephanie. They never formally discussed their relationship, but it was mutually known they were not exclusive. When John became engaged to Sherry, Stephanie heard the news through a mutual friend. It was during a period of time when John and Stephanie hadn't hung out together for quite a while. As it was a mutually non-exclusive agreement between them, John didn't think it was necessary to tell Stephanie the news himself. A month after the engagement, Stephanie called John and pleaded with him to visit her at her condo in the nearby suburb of Woodland Hills. Stephanie was upset and crying hysterically. John went to her condo and Stephanie confessed her love for him and pleaded over and over for him to have sex with her. John explained he was marrying Sherry and that he and Stephanie's relationship was now over. However, 
they did end up sleeping together that day. After this encounter, John says he didn't have any contact at all with Stephanie for the next few years. John and Sherry married on the 23rd of November, 1985. On their three-month anniversary, the 23rd of February, 86, John gave his new bride three red roses, a symbol of the three months they had been married. Sherry sat them in a vase on the dining table. That day, they were visited by Sherry's sister, Teresa, and her husband, Brian, as well as a close friend of John's, Mike Gorda. They all said how happy John and Sherry were that day, holding hands, laughing, and loving each other's company. The next morning, Monday the 24th of February, 86, John Rutten was up early to get ready for work. He left home at 7.20am and stopped to drop off dry cleaning on the way. Sherry wasn't going to work. She had woken up and called in sick. John knew that Sherry wasn't keen on attending a lecture that day, which had more to do with the sick day than her actually being sick. During the day, John called Sherry two or three times just to check in on her. There was no answer. The phone rang out as their answering machine was turned off. After finishing work, John stopped off at the bank before arriving home about 6pm. Sherry and John's condo was in a gated complex on the 7100 block of Balboa Boulevard, Van Nuys. A six foot high wall surrounded the entire block and to drive in you needed a remote control. Each pedestrian gate also required a key. Their condo was in the central part of the complex and it was not an easy place to get into unless you had a key or someone let you in. When John got home, he immediately noticed broken glass from the patio door scattered on the driveway. The garage door was up and Sherry's BMW was missing. A neighbour said it had been like that for most of the day. He saw the door up and car missing about 9.30am. The internal door from the garage to the condo was also ajar. John knew instantly that something was wrong. As John walked up the stairs from the garage, he found Sherry lying dead on the floor, still in her nightgown. Sherry had been severely beaten, her eyes were swollen, she had lacerations and bruising to her face and body, and a bite mark on her left inner forearm. The living room had been ransacked, the vase had been smashed all over the floor, the drawer had been pulled out and its contents tipped upside down. The TV wall unit was partially dismantled, and at the foot of the stairs, a stereo and VCR equipment had been stacked in a pile. Speaker wire and rope was laying at the entry to the home. John called 911, and the first responder on the scene was LA firefighter and paramedic Gregory Tillian, who found John crying. Criminalists from the Los Angeles County Coroner's Office arrived. They checked for trace evidence around Sherry's body and collected specimens. A sexual assault kit was carried out and two saliva swabs were taken from the bite mark on Sherry's arm. Sherry had been shot three times in the chest. The bullets were confirmed to be from a 38 calibre handgun and forensic tests later showed that the gun would have had a barrel length of two inches. They were unable to determine the exact gun as there were several capable of firing the bullets found at the scene. All of the crime scene evidence was logged into the coroner's office. The lead homicide detective on the case was Detective Lyle Mayer from the Van Nuys Division of the LAPD. After examining the scene, he was sure he knew what happened. A burglary gone wrong. Mayer's theory was as follows. Two offenders entered the condo through the unlocked front door. 
as there was no sign of forced entry. One began to dismantle the TV and stereo equipment, while the other went upstairs. Sherry startled the offender as he didn't realise she was home. A struggle started upstairs before continuing downstairs into the living room, leaving a bloody trail and handprint on the wall as Sherry attempted to escape, or possibly tried to reach the panic button, which was part of the condo's alarm system. While reaching for the offender's gun during the struggle, Sherry was bitten on her left inner forearm. She was hit over the head with the vase, likely knocking her unconscious. The offender then reached for a quilt which was sitting nearby. He wrapped the quilt around the barrel of the gun to muffle the sound, held the gun up to Sherry's chest, and fired three shots at close range. Marks on Sherry's wrists indicated she had likely been bound, and broken fingernails were found on the floor with a bloodied towel. There had been a spate of burglaries in the area in recent times. The offenders were described as Latino males, armed with a handgun, which is how Mayer came to theorise that two offenders were responsible. A door knock was conducted, and a neighbouring housekeeper said she heard a scuffle and a scream, but no gunshots. She didn't see anybody. Sherry's purse was missing, but it was found in a garden within the complex. There were a few things disturbed in the house, such as the stereo equipment and VCR. However, Sherry's jewellery box, which was in plain sight, wasn't touched. The only things actually stolen were Sherry's BMW and her and John's marriage certificate. Mayer believed the offenders must have panicked after killing Sherry and left in a hurry, leaving the stereo and VCR they had stacked up and taking the car instead for a quick escape. He had no doubt it was a burglary gone bad. He felt even better about this theory when two months later there was another burglary nearby. Two Latino males armed with a handgun. These two males became the focal point for the investigation. Wanted posters were distributed with sketches of the men, saying they were wanted for murder. Sherry's car was found ten days after she was killed. It was actually located nearby the condo, intact and with the keys still in the ignition. Sherry's killing came on the front end of a huge upswing of the murder rate in Los Angeles. The homicide rate in the city was the highest it had been in six years. Although Detective Mayer had his burglary suspects, John Rutten was still considered. The spouse is the first person police look at in any murder investigation. But there was no sign of trouble in the marriage. All reports were of a happy, loving couple still in the honeymoon phase. There was no insurance, no motive, and John had a rock-solid alibi. He had been at work all day, seen by many people in the office. During his questioning, John brought up several names, including that of Stephanie Lazarus, his ex-lover. He referred to her as a friend from his old student days. Nels and Loretta Rasmussen, Sherry's parents, came forward and provided Mayer with information about some disturbing incidents prior to the murder. Stephanie Lazarus turned up at Sherry and John's condo, dressed provocatively, and asked John to wax her skis, which he did. About one month after Stephanie's last sexual encounter with John, during his engagement to Sherry, Stephanie appeared at the hospital where Sherry worked. She approached Sherry in her office and said, If I can't have John, then nobody can. She also said that if the marriage didn't work out, then she would be there to pick up the pieces. Stephanie also told Sherry about the sexual encounter she had with John during their engagement. Sherry confronted John that night, and he admitted the infidelity, but he swore that he truly loved Sherry and that he wanted to be her husband. Sherry accepted John's apology, 
and their engagement continued. Stephanie started showing up at other places where Sherry was, and on one occasion she even appeared inside the condo. Sherry had no idea how she had gotten inside. She started to wonder if John was actually having a full-blown affair with Stephanie. Sherry also felt that she was being followed. The person she saw following her looked like a woman, disguised as a man. Sherry confided in her father, friends, and a work colleague about the problems she was having. She mentioned the person responsible was John's ex-girlfriend, but she never mentioned her name. Sherry's father, Nels, had offered to help, but Sherry said she wanted to see if she could work it out on her own. John said that other than the confrontation at the hospital, he was unaware of any of the other stalking behaviour Sherry had mentioned to friends and family. Detective Mayer, though, felt he was on the money with his burglary-gone-wrong theory. He was so sure of the theory, he never even questioned Stephanie, saying he felt it was unnecessary. The two Latino suspects remained unidentified, and as 1986 ended, the murder remained unsolved. The evidence was eventually sealed in a box and put away with thousands of other unsolved cases. The following year, 87, the Rasmussens held a press conference where they offered a $10,000 reward for any information leading to an arrest of their daughter's killer. Nels Rasmussen said, It's been nearly two years of hell not knowing who did this to Sherry or why. Nels mentioned John's ex-girlfriend numerous times to detectives. He didn't feel comfortable with the burglary theory and wanted detectives to pursue the ex-girlfriend angle. On one occasion he was told, You watch too much television. Frustrated and feeling ignored, Nels wrote a letter to the chief of police voicing his concerns. He didn't receive a reply. The year Sherry was murdered, 1986, was the same year that the science of police work worldwide took a monumental leap forward. In Leicester, England, Alec Jeffries developed techniques for DNA fingerprinting and DNA profiling which revolutionised the way criminal cases were solved. Known as genetic fingerprinting, it was first used to convict a rapist in England later that year. It was first used in the United States the following year, 1987. As the years went by, the Rasmussens contacted the LAPD regularly to check on the case. In 1993, Nels Rasmussen made an appointment to meet the detectives who had taken over the case after Detective Lyle Mayer's retirement. Nels had heard of the advances in DNA testing in criminal investigations, which was now becoming more widespread. Nels offered to pay for testing on the samples from Sherry's crime scene himself. The new detectives informed him they had looked into the case and had found no further leads. They turned down Nels' offer to pay for DNA testing. They told the Rasmussens to move on with their lives. After this meeting, the Rasmussen family stopped calling. John Rutten said little publicly after the murder. He didn't cope well, and eventually he quietly faded out of sight. Others close to Sherry were left angry that John wasn't demanding answers at the police. Although he had mentioned Stephanie to detectives, he didn't push the point. He didn't fight. He just seemed to accept that the case would remain unsolved. The LAPD Cold Case Homicide Unit was established in 2001. It was formed on the back of further advancements in forensic testing and a huge backlog of unsolved murders. When the doors to the Cold Case Unit opened, there were seven detectives and a caseload of over 9,000 unsolved murders. 
The LAPD had received a grant of $50 million to fund DNA testing for cases deemed to have sufficient evidence. The cold case unit focused on cases dating back to 1960. Seven and a half thousand cases in total, of which 1,400 were deemed to have sufficient evidence for testing. The two types of murders deemed to have the highest chance of leaving strong DNA evidence were sexually motivated and burglary murders, as the killer spends more time around the scene. The cold case unit had its first major breakthrough in 2003, closing a serial case, Adolf Laudenberg. A 77-year-old grandfather was arrested for the rape and murder of four women between 1972 and 1975. In this particular case, they had a DNA sample from somebody other than the victims, but there was no match on the database. When the suspect's DNA isn't on the database, police can apply for a warrant to force the suspect to provide a DNA sample, but they have to have other evidence to support the warrant application. Another option is to ask the suspect to volunteer. However, that then tips them off and presents the risk of them running and destroying further evidence if it exists. Which leaves the last option, obtaining a sample from an item the suspect has voluntarily discarded, such as a cup or a straw. This is how the cold case unit obtained a sample from Laudenberg, which put him away for the four murders. He is now serving life in prison. It wasn't long after this first big breakthrough that cold case detective David Lampkin and his team came across the case of Sherry Rasmussen. They first submitted a request to the crime lab to provide analysis on all of the evidence in Sherry's file in late 2003. It wasn't until December 2004 that crime lab technician Jennifer Francis noticed the request had never been filled, so she volunteered to work on it. She first analysed the blood sample taken from the autopsy, which provided her with Sherry's DNA profile. Working down the list of evidence, she tested the pieces of fingernail and the blood-stained towel found at the crime scene. Both were matches to Sherry. Finally, she went to swab the samples taken from the bite mark on Sherry's left inner forearm. Initially, the samples couldn't be located. However, after a search, they were found in storage at the LA County Coroner's Office. When a sample is taken, it is placed in a vial, which is then sealed in an envelope to preserve the integrity of the exhibit. In this case, the envelope had torn, causing the vial to protrude through. However, the vial and the samples themselves were found to be undisturbed and intact. Francis gained two separate DNA profiles from the bite mark. One was Sherry's. The other surprised Francis who by now had come to expect the XY male gender marker to show up from samples taken from violent crimes. But this result was showing XX. The killer was a woman. She ran the results through the computerised criminal database to try and match the DNA sample. There was no result. And so the case was put back into storage. By early 2007, when Detective David Lampkin retired, the cold case homicide unit had solved more than 40 murder cases. But an increase in open cases and a lack of room in the office meant that any cases not currently being worked on were sent back to their original divisions. So Sherry's case was sent back to the Van Nuys division, where it remained untouched for another two years. It wasn't until early 2009 that homicide detective Jim Nuttall picked up the file on his desk at Van Nuys. It was a large file, and Nuttall noticed that a pretty good chronological record had been kept of everything done during the investigation over the previous 23 years. He read the original theory. 
two male offenders had ransacked the property and had interrupted 29-year-old Sherry Rasmussen, who they had not realised was home. A struggle ensued and Sherry had been killed. Burglary gone wrong. But then he read about the testing that had been done five years earlier. The killer was female. This completely contradicted the theory of the case. Nuttall searched the case notes for the names of women who could possibly be considered suspects. He came up with five names. One of those names put a shiver through him. It stood out because written next to the name were the words P.O. John's ex-girlfriend, Stephanie Lazarus, was a patrol officer in the LAPD at the time of Sherry's murder. She was now a highly commended detective in a high-profile unit of the LAPD, and her husband was also a detective, who happened to work in Jim Nuttall's office. Stephanie Lazarus graduated from the police academy in the summer of 1983 and was assigned to Hollywood Division. In those days, only about 2% of the force were women. She went on to become a detective and was twice named Detective of the Year, receiving a promotion to Detective 2, a supervisory role. Stephanie's personnel file described her as an asset to the team. She was known for her honest character and outstanding police work, a cop's cop. She raised money to start a reliable, round-the-clock daycare centre for members of the LAPD. She became involved with the Drug Abuse Resistance Education Program and gave talks at schools. She even appeared on an episode of Family Feud when they were running a week-long special, Battle of America's Finest. She married a fellow detective in the mid-90s. They adopted a daughter and her friends described her as a great mother. Stephanie worked in internal affairs, the unit responsible for investigating corruption and wrongdoing of fellow officers, before earning a position in the Department of Art Theft and Fraud in 2007, a unit within the Commercial Crimes Division of the LAPD a high-profile position that came with a lot of attention and a lot of press. Stephanie had never faced a disciplinary hearing in her career and was known to always work by the book. Of the four other names that Nuttall identified in the file as potential suspects, three were quickly ruled out. The fourth was a nurse who had worked with Sherry. They didn't get along and had occasionally argued. Sherry had actually taken her position at the hospital, giving her motive but they cleared her by testing her DNA from a discarded item. That left one name, Stephanie Lazarus. Jim Nuttall had his work cut out for him. Not only was Stephanie a well-respected officer, but he worked with her husband. He sought the help of the LAPD's Robbery Homicide Division, based at Parker Centre in downtown LA, which was LAPD headquarters at the time. Robbery homicide investigate all the high-profile cases. The investigators had to tread lightly. The LAPD network is tight. The integrity of the case was their number one goal. They worked nights behind closed doors and gave Stephanie the code name, Number 5. They left no paper trail, nor did they disclose the investigation to anyone else. It was too risky. Their prime suspect had once been a detective in the Internal Affairs Division, and now they would be investigating her. Not only that, she worked at Parker Centre as well, directly across the hall from the Robbery Homicide Division. After reviewing the case file, one of the detectives on the case, Mark Martinez, recalled that in the mid-80s, LAPD officers carried 38 caliber revolvers as their backup or off-duty gun, the same type of gun used to kill Sherry. 
He entered Stephanie's name into the state gun registry and found a report. On Sunday the 9th of March 1986, 13 days after Sherry's murder, Stephanie filed a report with the Santa Monica Police Department. The report stated that her car had been broken into at the Santa Monica Pier. The thief had stolen her blue gym bag containing some clothes, some cassettes, and a Smith & Wesson 5-shot 38 caliber revolver. Things were starting to look very clear. Their main priority, though, was getting a sample of Stephanie's DNA. They decided the best way to play it would be to obtain a sample from something Stephanie voluntarily discarded. They had her under surveillance for two weeks before they got their chance. Stephanie was shopping with her daughter at a local Costco store. She purchased a drink and sat down at a table. A detective sat 20 feet away from her, watching her every move. He watched as she took her last sip and walked within three feet of him to put it in the bin. He didn't take his eyes off the bin as he waited for Stephanie to walk out of his field of vision. Then he approached the bin, picked up the cup by its base, and put it into an envelope. He and his partner then walked off in different directions. 48 hours later, they got the result. The DNA was a clear match. The chance that the bite on Sherry's arm was from a different person than Stephanie was over 402 quadrillion to one. On the 5th of June 2009, 23 years, 3 months and 12 days after the murder of Sherry Rasmussen, Stephanie Lazarus reported to work as usual at the Parker Centre. Detective Dan Jaramillo approached her desk and asked her if she could assist with an arrest they had made that morning. He explained they were holding a man in the building's basement jail facility who said he had information about an art theft, a case Stephanie was working on. She eagerly agreed to help question the suspect. They walked down to the jail facility, making small talk, discussing how busy each other's units were. When they arrived at the jail, they both had to check in their weapons, which was routine and a requirement of all officers before entering. They had just disarmed Stephanie without raising suspicion. Jaramillo guided Stephanie into an interrogation room where he introduced her to his partner, Detective Greg Stearns. Detectives Jaramillo and Stearns were from the Robbery Homicide Division. They ushered Stephanie to a seat usually used by those under arrest. I don't want to talk about this in the squadron because okay. I, I don't know who people are listening. That's true. That's and if we go to my side, everybody's yeah. always wondering what everybody oh, else yeah, is sure, doing. No okay. But uh, like we're talking about being busy and stuff. We've been assigned a case that we've been looking at. Okay. okay. It's a new case. And as we're doing the case, there's some notes uh, to see as far as your name being mentioned. Do oh, you, okay. Do you know John Rutten? John Rutten? Rutten. Rutten. Oh, yeah, I went to school with him. You did? Yeah. How long did you know him? Gosh, I went to school in, um, let's see, went to UCLA in 1978, I started, and, um, you know, met him at school at the dorms. Mm-hmm. Um, were you guys friends, close friends? Yeah, we're very close friends. I yeah. Mean, I mean, what's this all about? Well, it's regarding... It's a case we're working on, and it involves John, and in there, some of the statements we, we reviewed, uh, you know, there's notes and stuff that he, that he knew you and stuff. Oh, yeah. I mean, we good friends. Um, lived in the dorms for, I lived in the dorms for two years. Um, you guys lived in the same dorm? Yeah. Or, okay. Yeah, Dijkstra. Okay. Were you guys just friends or anything else, or? Yeah, we were, we were good friends. Yeah. Was there ever any relationship or anything to develop between you guys? 
yeah, I need to be dated. Uh, uh -huh. You know, um, I mean, is it, what's this all about? Well, it's relating to uh, his wife. Okay. Okay. Did you know her? Not really. I mean, I knew that he got married years ago. Uh-huh. Did you ever meet her? God, I don't know. Um, Do you know who she was or anything? Well, I... Let me think. God, it's been a long time ago. Mm -hmm. um, um, I, I may have met her. Jeez. Um, you know. Yeah. Uh, well, let me see. Let me ask you. You said you, you dated John. How long did you guys date? I mean, well, are you guys, is this something, I mean, you said that I was going to interview somebody about art and how well, you guys are, here's, here's <laughs> I mean. Stephanie, here's the situation. It's basically, we, you know, we knew that this, when we saw this in the, in, in this chrono that maybe, you know, there was some relationship there. That's what the chrono seemed to indicate. And we didn't want to come up to you at your desk and ask those kinds of questions or do anything. You know how up there people can see what's going on if you go into an interview room or people are in there getting oh, supplies. So we, we wanted to afford you some privacy, some confidentiality okay. to talk about this because we thought it might be, you know, something, you know, you're married to someone else, obviously, and so forth, and that you may not want to, you know, talk about these things in that setting where someone, you know, we don't want the rumor mill or gossip or any of that kind of stuff I mean, to start. that's fine. I mean... So we're, we're, we did this just as, as a means to try and speak to you in okay, just a confidential I mean, I just, place where you, you know, where where your business isn't out there for other people in, in well, you know, I mean, your division yeah, to know I about. Mean, you know, God, that's been a million years ago. I mean, you know... Um, what year is it now? 2009? I mean, I graduated in 82. 82, mm. yeah. Um, you know, we dated. Um, I dated other guys. I'm sure he dated other girls. Um, mm. I mean, wh wh you know, what's, uh, what's, I mean, what's this all about? I mean... Well, let me ask you. What ended the relationship between you and John? You know, I don't... It was kind of a weird relationship. I mean, we, we, we dated... Um, I can't say that he was my boyfriend. I don't know that he would consider me his girlfriend. Um, we just, we dated, we did things. I played sports in college. He played basketball. His brother played basketball. Um, it, it, we just, you know, it just didn't work out. I mean, I don't know what to tell you. It was like, I went out with other guys, um, saw other guys. I went on lots of vacations, um, you know. Had you ever met his wife? I may have. Do you know, do you remember her name or anything or? Um, um, or what she did for a living or where she worked or anything uh, about her? Well, I think she, I th I'm going to say that I think she was a nurse. Um, I mean, I can't remember how he, he said he met her. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, yeah, I mean, it's been so long ago. You know, I don't understand why you're talking about some guy I dated a million years ago. Well, do you know what happened to his wife? Yeah, I know she got killed. What, um, did, you, what did you hear about that? I, I saw a poster at work. Um, I'm sure I spoke to him about it. Um, I think I spoke to another friend of his about it. Um, and how did, how did you first learn about that? Jeez. <laughs> Someone could have called me. I could have heard it at work. Um, I think at one point there may have been a flyer or something. I know a good friend of his... Um, Were you on the job back then when that happened? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I'm sure I was on the job. That's why I would have heard about it with the flyer. Um, he had a good friend, Mike... Mike Boldrick? Mike... 
Anyways, a, 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 he may have lived in the dorms. I don't remember if that's how I met him. Um, I, I may have talked to him. I mean, you know, I don't remember how I heard. I mean, I don't even remember what year it was. You know, was it everything okay between you guys? I mean, there was never anything uncomfortable or anything between you and her? Um, you know, I don't know. I mean, it's God, it's been so many years. I mean, uncomfortable, I mean... I, I can't even I can't even remember if we had a conversation. I mean, we may have. I may have I may have seen her at his apartment. You know, jeez, uh, how many years ago is that? I don't even know what year she you know got killed. Where was his apartment? On Roscoe. Okay. Yeah, Roscoe and um, um, east or west of DeSoto, uh, either east or west of DeSoto. Do you know where he moved after? Did, did he move after he got married, or do you know or? Oh, I'm sure he did. Did you know um, where he was living, or somewhere in the valley? Did you ever visit him and his wife? No. No, never no. went out to you know get together dinners. Anything I know, of that nature. No. After his wife died, did did you talk to him again or anything? Yeah, I mean, I did talk to him. Mm-hmm. I talked to him, probably his parents. Um, probably some other friends um you know i'm sure i talked to him yeah um but you you don't you're not sure where he moved to after he got married no idea i never mean, went I, over to, to visit him or i don't think i mean i don't or, think so i mean um i don't know i don't i mean i don't think i did um i mean i know he lived on roscoe for a long long time um I mean, he, I may know. I mean, he may have told me where they lived, uh-huh. somewhere in the valley. I mean, he may have said, he, I lived over such and such, but I, I couldn't tell you specifically where. But you don't remember specifically ever going over to visit him or visit them at where, wherever I, he moved when he left Roscoe? I, I, I honestly, I don't know. I don't think so, but, okay. I, you know, I don't want to say, no, I don't think so. And then he says, oh, yeah, she came over for something, dropped something off. You know, I, I'm, it, I don't know. I mean, when when you heard about uh, John's wife being killed, I mean, what was your what was your reaction? I mean, when did, you thought you heard about it, what through a friend or at, at, in a bulletin or Either something? Either a friend or a bulletin. Um, I obviously, I mean, I called. I called the family. Um, I, I called maybe some of his friends that 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 I knew. And I mean, obviously, it shocked you if you're if I heard it at work, you know, um, which I may have. I, I faintly remember a bulletin going around. Um, Either that or somebody called me. I, I also don't, don't remember. Right. Um, uh, and then I called, probably called his family, um, called, uh, I don't know initially, I can't say if I initially spoke to him or not. <clears throat> I honestly don't remember. I may have said to somebody, hey, have him call me if he wants to talk. And then he may have done that. Uh-huh. Um, you know. Um, do, you, do you know what the circumstances were? Regarding her death? Mm. Jeez, oh, let me think back. Um, geez, I don't know if it was, you know, if it was a burglary or something. Uh, yeah, it's, I mean, it's been so many years. I, I mean, I can faintly think that I may have saw a flyer. Yeah. Uh, may have had her picture on it. You know, um, I mean, that's why I say, 
if somebody had called me, I may not have known what her last name was. I may have. I mean, maybe if you told me, I would remember it. Um, you remember you know. the first name? <sighs> Shelly, um, Sherry, I don't know, something maybe, you know, um, like I said, it's been so many years. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm thinking back now, you guys are bringing up all these whole memories. No, it kind of dusts um, off the cobwebs. You know, I mean, geez. Um, I'm thinking that... Because, I mean, we would date, he would date other people, I would date other people. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, at one point, I mean, he may have been dating her, or I don't know, maybe he was married, I don't even remember. And I'm like, you know what, why are you calling me if you're either dating her or living with her or married to her? Because I, I, I honestly don't remember the time frame. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm like, come on, knock it off. And I'm, I'm now I'm thinking, I may, I may have gone to her and say, hey, you know what? you know what is he dating you he's he's bothering me um and so i'm thinking that we had a conversation about that um one or two maybe I, I, you know I, it could have been three i don't want to say i had three conversations with her oh, like, I, at, I like at her work or at their at their house or no i'm thinking that i'm you know he obviously must have told me where she worked i'm thinking it was a hospital somewhere in la and i just i mean i could have been Again, what year was that? Where was I working? Um, you know, I don't, I don't, I'm trying to think of where I, when did you say they got married? I don't know. I think it was like in 85 or 86 or something like that. You know, we, 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 we just kind of picked this up. We don't, you know, we don't know a lot about it. I mean, I could have been working in Hollywood, it sounds like, if, if that's where I was working. Um, so I could have said, okay, well, you know, and I went and talked to her um, and just said, hey, you know what? You know, if he's dating you, he's he's keeps calling me. Why don't you tell him to knock it off or whatever? And, you know, because I probably would have told him to knock it off. Who would you have know? told John? Oh, yeah. When you said like, hey, you know, he's calling me. He needs to knock it off or what have you. I mean, was that was that civil? Was there? I mean, oh yeah, it... no, there was not. I don't think there was anything. It was if the conversation lasted a, a, a few minutes. I can't even remember. And what is it like? You know, we went out to lunch or anything. Right, but there was but, no like arguments or fights I, I or it didn't so. get heated or anything like not that. Not that I recall. No, I mean, what? I would think that would stand out. I would think. Now again, that's not standing out in my mind. Um, you know. So you didn't have any problems with her then? No. You didn't have any issues with her? No, I mean... But let me let me ask you, it seems like you didn't have any issue. Now, did she have an issue with you as far as... Oh. Because now you're telling her, hey, you know, Helma, stop calling. Now, she, you know, she's like, hey. You know, you figure she'd be threatened cool. by you. You know, I, I don't know. I mean... From what you remember as far as when you talked to her, maybe you didn't take it as serious, <laughs> but maybe, you know, did she... I mean, like, was she throwing things at me or something? Or, well, no, just, you know, as far as you're trying to explain, like, hey, have him stop calling me, you know, stop playing games. You know, I, I tell you, it, if the conversation, I couldn't even tell you how long the conversation, if you said, did it last a half an hour? Did it last three minutes? Did it last 20 minutes? I can't even remember. It's been so long ago. Um, but again, I mean, you know, what's, I mean, what's this got to do with me dating him and, you know, her getting killed? I mean, I, I don't, you know, I don't have anything to do with it, and you got something that's, somebody said, you know, 
whatever. I mean, well, like we said, we, j- we just literally got this the other day, and, and you're going through it, yeah, and you see and you saw me say, your oh, name next next door, right? And, <laughs> and so you know, I mean, obviously, it's like we recognize yeah. the name, and we know that you know you work yeah. next door to us, and so. We're trying to get some background. We're trying to figure this out. I mean, this is from a long time ago. Oh, I know. And you know, and, and, and things have been kind of slow for us. And so, you know, Chief Beck has said, hey, you know, I want you guys working. I don't want you just sitting around reading the paper. Yeah. So he's kind of pushing some older cases out even to the guys that yeah. work active cases because, you know, and so we see this and we're just like, oh, yeah. well, we, you know, we want to talk to you about it. But, of course, the only reason we did it here is because we're getting into some pretty personal stuff no, in I your relationship. You know, my I, my and, husband's yeah. on the job, yeah. and we've and, and been so married. We you know, we don't want to take the risk. We don't want to take the risk in one of those interview rooms. And even when the door closed, it. someone's going to get no. supplies and see us on a monitor, or hears yeah. or whatever. No, I appreciate it. I mean, I you know, appreciate. Like I said, that's where people go when there's orals. You know, when they're doing orals, <laughs> yeah. guys will go in there and try and watch. Like, I, oh, what are the answers to the questions? You know, I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah. So, so we just we just want to afford you the most privacy and confidentiality we could. Let me ask: Did the detectives ever reach out to you? Ever, no, ever? no one's ever talked to me. I don't think anybody ever talked to me about mm-hmm. about him. Um, it seems like back I, then you know. Been well, in. I, I take. I'm thinking that I did talk to a detective. Um, God. Well, what division was it? In Van Nuys. Hmm. And where was I working? Um, 1986. I would have been working in Devonshire. You know, I'm thinking that I did speak to somebody. Oh, really? I okay. couldn't tell you who it was. Because <laughs> it doesn't, it doesn't it was say anything. It probably on the what... phone. Okay. Um, Would it have been somebody in regards to this or just... Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, I don't even know if you said a name, if I would remember it. Because I worked Van Nuys for a while. Oh, you um, did? Yeah, I worked... Um, detectives patrol? No, I worked detectives. Uh-huh. Um, when did I go to Van Nuys? I worked Devonshire till '88, then I went to Dare till '92. I worked twice at Van Nuys. Um, Both as detective. Yeah. I, you know, I don't know. It's like, it's like I said, this stuff's been so long ago. Um, you know, I'm sure as soon as I walk out of here, I'll go. Oh shoot! I did 25 things I'll remember. Um, you know. But you'll call um, us, or I mean, you'll just come over to our desk yeah, and tell us. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know what else you need to know. Like I said. You know, we, we knew friends together, um, you know, um, I mean, I don't know what else to tell you. Well, one of the concerns I had is looking at some of the notes is uh, some of Sherry's friends said that you and her were having a problem <laughs> because of the John situation. <laughs> well, number one, I don't know who her friends are because, um, again, I don't, I don't recall if he did tell me where he met her I don't know even who these friends are a problem like I said if I spoke to her I mean I'll go on as far and as a limb and I don't even want to say I spoke to her five times because that's probably not even true I, I, I can't even remember well that's what I'm reading is that you guys have problems with each other and words are being exchanged and it's all relating to John <laughs> you know what I I I, I I just I can't say. You can't say. No, I, that, that doesn't even ring a bell. So I mean, I mean, it seemed like yeah, you would recall something if somebody's would, going off think, on you, right? I would think. I mean, I would think. Well, when tell me about this uh, car getting broken into. Well, my car had been broken into several times. Oh really? Did you ever lose anything or? Yeah. Now that you mention it, let's see. 
had a gun that was stolen. Mm -hmm. uh, I had other stuff that was stolen. Not your duty gun, was it? No. Oh, that's good. Um, Is it ever recovered? I don't know. No, I don't think so. Not that I know of. Never been notified? No. The car's been broken into, yeah, several times. Well, like I said, as we were looking at the case, and, you know, we had read the notes as far as from uh, Sherry's friend saying, you, you guys had problems or words, and they got heated. You know, and the reason we're asking you is they had mentioned that an incident at her work had occurred, and uh, they've also told us that an incident at her house occurred. You know what? And this is at her house during the period of time that they're married. <laughs> That's just not sounding familiar at all. No. I mean, I, you know what? I. That's just not sound. I, I, again, if someone says that I was at her house and I had an incident with her, I, I, you know, I that just doesn't sound. I, 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 you know, was John there? Did John say this happened because, and other people were there? I, I, I just I don't recall. I mean, it just doesn't sound, you know, familiar. And this is an incident where you showed up, you weren't supposed to show up, and things got heated. At his house? Yeah. <laughs> that I, you know, I, that just doesn't sound familiar. I mean, Nothing. Uh, I, you know, it's not sounding familiar. So not at all. Now you're saying not familiar because it's just something well, you remember, or it's well, just. Well, you know what? I would have then I'd have to say I don't remember because I don't remember. I it, that doesn't sound familiar. I. I mean, would you, you know, remember something like that in your life? If well, I would think, some but sort of drama involving you know the other woman type of thing. Did you, ever, did you ever fight with her? You mean like we fought? Yeah. Did you ever yeah. duke it out with her? No, I don't think so. I mean. You'd remember that, right? That would be pretty. Yeah, I would think so. I mean, specific, th you know, yeah, like I said, I mean, dramatic. obviously, I, you know, I mean, it just doesn't sound familiar. I mean, I mean, what are they saying? So I, I, I fought with her, so, so now, I mean, I, 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 I'm get, getting the jump, the leap. Excuse me, I haven't eaten. Um, they're saying, okay, I fought with her, so I must have killed her. I mean, come on. I mean, that's, you know, I. I I don't even know who these people are. I, I can't even say I met any of these people. I mean, that's it's insane. Mm -hmm. I, if it happened, I honestly don't remember it. I mean, I don't want to still tell you. Yeah. No, because I'm. I mean, I'm trying to. I'm looking at the notes, and these people are kind of. I mean, they're pointing the finger at you. <laughs> well. And. I mean, that's not ringing a bell to me. So, mm -hmm. you know, I don't know. You know, it's. Uh, I don't know what to tell you. I mean, that just sounds crazy to me. Yeah. So you, offhand, you don't recall ever going into her house and having words and physically, you know, no. attacking I mean, her, her attacking you. No. Nothing like that. No. I mean, that's no. Nothing. No. No. Not at all. Okay. Well, on some of the, uh, on this case, you know, this is it occurred in '86, right? Uh, detectives processed the scene, things of that nature. Uh, they did fingerprints and all that stuff. You know, the, well, you know the standards. Mm -hmm. I mean, you've been doing this longer than I have. Uh, well, I don't know about that. <laughs> I got 26 years on, yeah. going on 26. 19, so. <laughs> but, you know, as they processed everything, 
they did the best they could at that time, and they looked at a lot of a lot of people and different things in this case. And you're right. I mean, if you guys are claiming that I'm a suspect, then you know I, I got a problem with you know with that. Okay. Okay. So, you know, if you're if you're doing this as an interrogation, you're saying, hey, I'm a suspect. Well, I, now I got a problem with you know now you're accusing me of this. Is that what you're is that what you're saying? We're trying to figure out what happened, Stephanie. Uh, well, I'm, I was, you know, I'm just saying, you know, do I need to get a lawyer if you're accusing me of I this? I mean, you know. You don't have to. I mean, you know, I'm just, you're here of your own free will. I mean, no, you know, oh, I, I know, but I mean. I mean you know you're not, you're not under arrest. You can walk out whenever you You can leave you whenever you like. Well, but, you know, I, I'm trying to give you some background of, you know, how I knew him. And now you're telling me that some somebody's saying that we had this big old fight and I don't even know what you're talking about. Um, you know, and I don't want to, you know, get in trouble for something that I didn't even do, or you're saying I did something. Okay. Yeah, we understand. I mean, how would you guys like it if the tables were turned on you? I understand. No. Um, oh, that's what we're telling you. I mean, you're free to go whenever you want. If, if this makes you uncomfortable and you want to... Well, you now you're starting leave. to make me uncomfortable. The thing is, I mean, detectives did what they could at that time on the crime scene, okay? And the burglary thing you're talking about, that is an angle that they looked at. I go, but now we're looking at everything else on the case because nobody was ever arrested on the case. I, I don't know that or not. Okay. Now, what we'd like to do is, obviously, you know about all the DNA stuff and things of the nature that, you know, gets done on cases nowadays. You know, if we asked you for a, a DNA swab, would you be willing to give us one? Maybe. <laughs> Because now, 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 yeah, because now, now I'm thinking I probably need to talk to a lawyer. Okay. I mean, because well, I, I know how this stuff works, okay? Don't get me wrong. You're right. I have been doing this a long time. Yeah. And, and I wish I had been recording this because, because now it sounds like, you know, there's, you know, you're selling these people, say I'm fighting with her, and now it sounds like you're trying to, you know, I've been doing this a long time. Yeah, we know. Okay? And, it, and now it almost sounds like you're trying to pin something on me. No, now I, I got that sense. Well, what it gets to on these, on these cases, and you know it as well as I do, our job is to identify and eliminate suspects. I can't believe this. So if we ask you to the point to give us a DNA sample, a buccal swab, so we can identify or eliminate you, would you be willing to do that? Maybe. Because well, I know this. I, 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 well, that's where we're at, too. I mean, because right now, from looking at the evidence, it's, you know, it's possible we may have some DNA at the location. That's great. And we're going to do what we can to try to put this thing together. And your name's in the book. These people are pointing at you for whatever reason. I don't know why. And that's just crazy. I mean, that's just, that's absolutely crazy. And it would be irresponsible on our part not to look at it. I know. You guys have to do your job. And, and I guess I'm going to have to contact somebody. So. That's fair. I mean, because I, I know how this stuff works. Sure. I mean, I, 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 I just can't believe it. That's, I, I mean, we, we understand that. I mean, if we were in your position, I mean, we would feel the same way. I, I just can't even believe it. I mean, it's just, I, I mean, I'm shocked. I'm really shocked okay. that somebody would be blame, saying that I did this. I mean, we had a fight, and so I went and killed her. I mean, come on. Well, That's... Okay. All right. Well, thanks for giving me the courtesy. I wish I could keep recording. Thanks for your time. Yes, thank you. All right, Stephanie, take care. All right. Stephanie stood up and left the interrogation room. She was followed by Detective Jaramillo, who said, Stephanie... You are under arrest for Sherry's murder, okay? And we have your DNA. 
Stephanie was handcuffed and then led back to the interrogation room. This is absolutely crazy. Have a seat, Stephanie. This is insane. Okay. Okay. Stephanie, you know you have the right to remain silent. Do you understand? Yes. Anything you say may be used against you in court. Do you understand? Yes. You have the right to the presence of an attorney before and during any questioning. Do you understand? Yes. If you cannot afford an attorney, one will be appointed for you free of charge before any questioning if you want. Do you understand? Yes. Do you want to talk to us right now? No. <laughs> okay. All right. Okay. This then. is crazy. Okay. This yeah, is absolutely... I'm like, I'm like in shock. I'm totally in shock. Stephanie pleaded not guilty and was held in custody until the trial, unable to meet the $10 million bail that was set. The trial started on the 6th of February 2012, almost 26 years after Sherry was murdered. The jury heard that not long before the murder, Stephanie woke her then housemate and fellow officer in the middle of the night. She was devastated that John was getting married and she needed support. John Rutten's sister read out a letter her mother had received from Stephanie just prior to John's wedding. It read, I'm totally in love with John, and the past year has really torn me up. I don't think I'll ever understand his decision. Another officer testified that in the months leading up to the murder, Stephanie showed off lockpicking tools she had obtained. A journal found in Stephanie's apartment showed the names of two books, The Complete Course in Professional Locksmithing and Modern Locksmithing. The journal entry was written the same week Sherry was murdered. A possible explanation as to why there was no sign of forced entry. Testimony after testimony painted a picture of a jealous ex-girlfriend with the means and motive to kill Sherry. The court heard that Stephanie had taken three days off work over the time Sherry's murder had taken place, so she had no alibi. After showing the jury a photo of John and Sherry on their wedding day, Deputy District Attorney Shannon Presby said, a bite, a bullet, a gun barrel, and a broken heart. That's the evidence that will prove Stephanie Lazarus killed Sherry Rasmussen. Stephanie's defense lawyer, Mark Overland, argued that Stephanie's gun was stolen and that the bullets at the crime scene could have come from many different types of revolvers. The jury heard arguments to back up the botched burglary theory and testimony that painted a pristine picture of Stephanie and her unblemished 25-year LAPD career. The defence used her prominence and position within the LAPD to put doubt in the jury's mind that she was a murderer. But the key argument by Overland was the condition of the evidence envelope containing the bite mark swabs. He argued that this meant the vial could have been tampered with, and therefore the DNA evidence was tainted. The judge rejected this argument and supported the admissibility of the DNA evidence. After hearing all of the evidence, the jury retired to reach their verdict. They needed little more than a day to reach their decision. Good afternoon. We are back on the record in People versus Lazarus. Shortly before noon, the uh, jury announced they have a verdict. We will take the verdict this time. Before I buzz the jurors out, though, I want to remind everyone that this is a court of law and I will not tolerate any outbursts of any kind in reaction to this verdict. Buzz out the jury. People of the state of California versus Stephanie Eileen Lazarus. Case number BA 357423. 
We, the jury, in the above entitled action, find the defendant, Stephanie Eileen Lazarus, guilty of the crime of murder of Sherry Rasmussen in violation of Penal Code Section 187A, a felony, as charged in count one of the information. We further find the murder was of the first degree. We further find the allegation that in the commission of the above offense, the defendant, Stephanie Eileen Lazarus, personally used a firearm, namely a handgun, within the meaning of Penal Code Section 12022.5, subsection A1 to be true. This eighth day of March in the year 2012, juror number nine, four person. John Rutten read a victim impact statement to the court. The following is taken from parts of that statement. Sherry Rasmussen had a profound impact on so many people, and I was proud that she agreed to be my wife. It was impossible not to notice Sherry when she entered a room. To me, her physical presence was startling. I can clearly remember the first moment I laid eyes on her. For those of us who are directly involved, or those who sat through the trial, we can just begin to imagine the terror and disbelief Sherry must have felt in her last moments of life. I'm sure that I'm not alone when I say that I just can't bear thinking about these moments. But Sherry's loss, the way she died, and the trial 25 years after her death has had a profound impact on many, many others. The effects span a generation, creating pain for those whose lives should have never been touched by this tragic event. Again, words are feeble tools for describing these impacts, but there are so many moments and so very many tears. What I can say is that I have spent, and will continue to spend, many hours praying for everyone involved in this tragedy. Your Honour, I am compelled to end with my feelings for the Rasmussens. After meeting Sherry, I could not help but notice the central role she played in this fun-loving and down-to-earth family. Nels and Loretta Rasmussen lost much more than a daughter when they lost Sherry. Only they fully appreciate what I am talking about. Despite my own tremendous grief, I must still apologise to them for my inability to coexist with the pain they were enduring. I just did not have the strength. The Rasmussens have treated me like a son and a brother. Contemplating their profound grief and the fact that Sherry's death occurred because she met and married me brings me to my knees. I do not know and fear I will never know how to cope with this appalling fact. I have resigned myself to praying for some measure of peace and trying to avoid the daydreams about a world where Sherry is still with us and this pointless tragedy never occurred. On Friday the 11th of May 2012, Judge Robert Perry sentenced Stephanie. The total sentence imposed is 27 years to life in the state penitentiary. 25 years to life for first-degree murder and an additional two years for personal use of a firearm. He credited her over 1,000 days for good behaviour and a time already served. The police officers union issued a statement saying they hoped the case would not tarnish the reputation of thousands of dedicated police officers. LAPD spokeswoman Mary Grady said the department had begun the process of figuring out why the original detectives failed to consider Stephanie as a suspect. She said, We are going to look at everything we can to bring some justice to the family. Los Angeles Police Chief Charlie Beck, who had worked closely with Stephanie during her career, said, Not only did the family of Sherry Rasmussen lose a wife and a daughter, a life that can never be returned, but also the LAPD family felt a sense of betrayal to have an officer commit such a terrible crime. I am truly sorry for the loss of your wife, 
your daughter. I am also sorry it took us so long to solve this case and to bring a measure of justice to this tragedy. Stephanie immediately launched an appeal, during which she raised the following. Her right to due process had been denied by the more than two decade long delay in bringing charges. The lower court should have quashed search warrants for her home and computers. The taped pre-arrest interview should not have been admitted at trial. Her ability to defend herself in court was compromised because one witness had died and some evidence had been destroyed. And she wasn't allowed to present evidence of other burglaries in the area at her trial. A three-justice panel from California's 2nd District Court of Appeal made their ruling in July 2015. They found the following. She confessed to her roommate, wrote in her journal, and confided in a letter to Rutten's mother her deep-seated unhappiness and distress over Rutten's marriage to Rasmussen. The appellant was off work the day of the killing. She had no alibi. The gun used to commit the murder was consistent with a gun owned by the appellant, and the bullets used were LAPD-required ammunition. Within weeks, the appellant reported a gun that matched the likely murder weapon stolen, but only to Santa Monica police not to her own department, which was investigating the murder. The evidence of motive and the circumstantial evidence, combined with the presence of the appellant's DNA on a wound inflicted on the victim, provide convincing evidence of the appellant's guilt. There is nearly an inescapable inference that the appellant confronted, assaulted, and murdered Rasmussen. Stephanie's appeal was denied. Her conviction upheld. She then tried another appeal to the Supreme Court, the highest court in the state. However, the Supreme Court refused to even hear the appeal. In 2010, the Rasmussens attempted to sue the LAPD over their handling of the case and the fact that they didn't investigate Stephanie originally, despite their requests to do so. The trial judge and the appeals court both reluctantly tossed out the lawsuit as it had been filed too late. They said even the most liberal reading of the statute of limitations prevented them from filing a lawsuit after 1998. The Californian Supreme Court refused to take up the appeal, ruling the lower courts were correct. It was 12 years too late to file a lawsuit. During the trial, prosecutors said the following. Stephanie misused her police training in the most profound way imaginable by utilising that training and experience to commit murder and to cover up her crime. She betrayed the trust placed in her by the Los Angeles Police Department and by the people of Los Angeles in order to pursue her own murderous ends. Her profound narcissism led her to kill and continues to motivate her denial of responsibility. Stephanie knew to stage the crime scene to make it look like a burglary. She knew how to avoid leaving other evidence, like fingerprints. But the idea that saliva from a bite mark could lead to her undoing was inconceivable at that time. She could be eligible for parole consideration after serving 16 years and 8 months. However, District Attorney Steve Cooley said given the circumstances, it is likely Stephanie will spend the rest of her life behind the bars.